Welcome to Writer Types, great conversations with today's top crime and mystery writers. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is S.W. Loudon. I got to say, my favorite of all the S.W.s I know. <laughs> it's not it's true. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. I mean, I'll, I'll take it. I guess you get you take compliments where you can get them. Exactly. So, Steve, it's another star-studded show today, right? Indeed it is, Eric. We've got author Sarah Grand sharing her thoughts on how popular writer types is. People used to talk about that stuff, and I noticed people talk about it less and less. And I think that's a real problem. And none other than Lee Child shared his advice for aspiring authors. My advice for all intending writers is quit your job and give your money away. Plus, we talked to Peter Leonard about reviving the character of Raylan Givens. All that brought to you by our sponsor, Rare Bird Books. A few rare bird titles that Writer Types listeners might enjoy include Cold Water by Diana Gould, Hollywood vs. The Author, edited by Stephen J. Schwartz, and Night Sun by Dan Vining. Find out more about their excellent books at rarebirdbooks.com. Well, Steve, have you read any good books lately? I have. I read two complex Japanese mysteries that both centered around cold cases. Oh. Uh, the first is The Tokyo Zodiac Murders by Soji Shimeda. Have you heard of this book? I have not. It's a complicated and detailed mystery that was really unlike anything else I've ever read before. So after I finished it, I went looking for more stuff like it. And I ended up reading a more modern novel called 6-4 by Hideo Yokoyama. Have you heard of that one? I've at least heard of that one. I've not read it. I mean, this is definitely another unique take on crime fiction that, like the Tokyo Zodiac murders, is really intricately plotted and truly original. So those were a lot of fun. And I'm guessing I'll probably go down a little bit of a Japanese murder mystery rabbit hole which is always good to get me out of my comfort zone and find something new to be excited about. How about you, Eric? Well, first of all, I have uh, a couple of Japanese authors to recommend for you. So hit me up later, uh, you know, text me or uh, what, what do the kids say? Ping me. Yeah, I will find you on MySpace or whatever they're doing. Now. <laughs> Excellent. I just read uh, a really great thriller called The Truth Itself by James Rayburn. And uh, this is a, a very, like, I guess you call it just a straight up mainstream thriller. It's, it, it takes place in far flung international locales. It deals with uh, spies who have quit the business and then uh, are getting sort of sucked back in or at least falling victim to their past misdeeds. But the thing that really drew me to this was that James Rayburn is a pen name for a writer named Roger Smith, who uh, is a South African writer who I've really, really loved for a long time. And he wrote some of my favorite crime novels about Cape Town, South Africa, his former hometown. Now he's relocated to Thailand. And a bulk of this book, The Truth Itself, takes place in Thailand. And it really is kind of a different feel for Roger Smith. So you can understand why he put a pen name on it. But if there are thriller fans out there looking for uh, just a real, uh, you know, full adrenaline pedal to the metal thriller, I really highly recommend it. Look at us, international mystery readers, which comes on the heels of you and I attending the International Men of Mystery Conference this past weekend. Well, back in September, Steve, we were at another conference, the BoucherCon International Mystery Convention, where we recorded several interviews with uh, some real A-listers, and we've been saving a few of those for our listeners, kind of like early Christmas presents, including this one with Lee Child. Lee Child, of course, is the author of the Jack Reacher novels. His 23rd Jack Reacher novel, Past Tense, was just released. 
Jack Reacher, he has a tendency to always sort of disappear into the great expanse of America, and, and all that open space, I think, helps him in his lifestyle. Is this a character that would not work back in England? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, Reacher is, people say he's a Western character, uh, you know, like Zane Grey type of the mysterious writer who comes in off the range. And he undoubtedly is, but that character itself was an invention, or rather an import, from medieval Europe when the Black Forest, for instance, was really dangerous territory, and there would be essentially the same character then. And further back, a few hundred years in the Scandinavian legends, uh, you could trace it back even to the ancient Greeks with uh, the Odyssey, and you can look at even religious stories, you know, the savior myth, the guy that shows up unexpectedly. So it's an ancient character, but it does need a particular geography and a particular type of physical culture in order to survive, uh, even for current-day plausibility. You know, in, uh, in Britain, everybody knows everybody else's business. You, know? <laughs> you, you can't have an isolated town or village that's hundreds of miles from somewhere else with something really freaky going on. It just doesn't happen. The geography is crucial, absolutely. You know, my second book, Reacher, is kidnapped essentially in Chicago and thrown into a van and driven like 2,000 miles into the Rocky Mountain hideout, which is obviously plausible in the U.S., yeah. but not plausible in Britain. If you've been kidnapped where I lived and um, driven 2,000 miles, you're in Algeria. <laughs> Does that, does that merge with your worldview as well? Do you see America through those eyes as well in your own personal experience? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, obviously, first time I came to America was 1974 uh, because I met an American girl in college in Britain and, and we're still together. And so it's always been, a girl. Yeah, I've, it's always a girl. <laughs> and so I, I've known America for a long time, but prior to that, what did I know about America? It was... America in Europe was this strange, uh, strange apparition. It was almost sort of archaeological because there had been millions of GIs, obviously, in Britain during World War II. They'd all gone home, but there were fragmentary traces of them left. You know, somebody would have inherited half of a Superman comic from his uncle, or somebody's (laughs) got a pack of Lucky Strikes, or somebody's got a piece of Wrigley's gum still in the wrapper. It was this fragmentary (laughs) kind of trace evidence, Uh, a lot of it based on myth and legend, and, of course, television and movies. So my image of America was kind of distorted by that in a very romanticized way, and I don't think I've ever really got rid of that. You know, Mm -hmm. I love the country, and I... Because it is rooted not really in real quotidian experience for me, but it's rooted in in pleasure. Yeah, uh, you know, books, movies, television. So you're an established and successful author who continues to give back to the writing community. Uh, you give a lot of book blurbs. Uh-huh. Um, so, in your opinion. What's the secret to writing an eye-catching book recommendation for somebody else's <laughs> book? Uh, what I try and do, uh, previous to being a writer, I worked in television where I would write tens of thousands of trailer lines and um, pack shot lines for commercials and so on. So you do value the succinct brevity of it. Yeah. Uh, so what I do is I just read the book and words pop into my head, you know, intense or this or that, and then you just string them together in a punchy little sentence. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully it'll do somebody some good. And I do it because... It was done for me at the beginning. My first book had three blurbs on it. 
for no reason at all other than <laughs> kindness and goodwill and somebody going out of their way to help me out. And so I think it's only decent. You've got to pay that forward if you can. Yeah, it's the, it's the uh, old quote that if you make it to the penthouse, be sure to send the elevator exactly. back down. Exactly. Send yeah. the elevator back down to the ground floor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you worked in TV. I work in TV as my, for my day job. And I wonder if you had a similar experience that I do when you, when you took on novel writing, which is in television, after a while, all of that collaboration and teamwork gets to be a little much. And if you sit down to write a novel for at least that little moment, it's all yours. Exactly. That's, a, that's absolutely it. I mean, I worked for a great uh, drama and documentary producer. It was a really outstanding uh, operation. And we did some great stuff. But if it was really terrific, I couldn't really take credit for it because yeah. 100 people had worked on it. If it was lousy, I couldn't really be blamed because 100 people had worked on it. And so there was that slight, it was like picking a lock with a pipe cleaner, you know. <laughs> it was, the directness was not there. And writing novels, of course, there are editors, publicists, marketing people, booksellers, all of those people do a great job. But fundamentally, it is just you. It is one-on-one on, one on one with the reader, the author and the reader. Their brains are kind of hardwired together for a couple of days while the book is being consumed. And that is about as direct as you will ever get in entertainment, I think. And now you had the time to write that first book because you had gotten fired. Mm -hmm. So is that, is that the element that I'm missing here? Is I, just, I need to get fired? Honestly, I think it is. I mean, I, <laughs> at a conference like this, there's a lot of people who write with day jobs. Yeah. And I do not know how they do it. I, I really don't. I needed that uh, panic, essentially, to, to really motivate myself. So my advice for all intending writers is quit your job and give your money away. Uh, and then you're really focused. There you go. Well, we're going to send uh, all complaint letters directly to you. Okay. <laughs> People quitting their jobs all across the U.S. <laughs> Reacher at this point is almost part of your family. Uh -huh. um, kind of a part of you, really. Uh, do you ever get in arguments with him like you would with like a family member when you're writing a new book? I think there's two levels to that question. Number one is... Um, is no, is no. I mean, this is not a real person. This, I'm very clear in my mind this is a fictional invention. I'm also very clear as a reader. You know, I've been a reader all my life, and it is very easy to identify series that go bad because the writer falls in love with the character. Mm. Uh, at some point, uh, typically, I don't know, five books in, six books in, something like that, the, reader, the writer becomes kind of really convinced, yeah, hey, this is a hell of a guy. <laughs> and they then approach it somewhat differently, protectively. They're always showing the guy in the good light. They're taking out the warts. And generally speaking, when that happens, the series falls apart. So I try to learn from what I know as a reader. And so what I do is... I crank him up once a year to write the book, and then I forget all about him, keep him at total arm's length. And I would also totally always win an argument with him, because I'm the only person in the whole world that he's afraid of. I, <laughs> I could make him do anything. Well, here we are early September, and I, I want to know, do you still follow your model of starting a new book in September? Yeah, what is today, like Friday or something? And I started last Saturday, the 1st of September. I did four days and then came here. Wow. I'm pretty pleased with it. You know, the start for me, because I don't have a plan, I don't have an outline, I have no clue what the book is going to be about or what, what, what the feel is going to be. Brave man. So <laughs> the, the beginning part is crucial in as much as it kind of sets a mood and a tone and a pace and a color. 
And uh, typically, do those first few pages end up staying, or do they get pre- always? Yeah, yeah. I, it's almost a, I don't know what it is a superstition for me. I never, ever, ever change the first line or the first paragraph. Wow! Because oh. I feel like it has a, a sort of energy and organic spontaneity of its own. And the, if you start to unpick it, it just inevitably will get worse and worse. C- can you tease what the first line of the next <laughs> book's going to be for it? An exclusive here? Do yeah, you remember the, it? <laughs> the title is Blue Moon. What that means, I don't know, but. The first line is, the city looked small on a map of America. It was just a tiny, polite dot next to a red threadlight road that ran across an otherwise empty inch of paper. It's a writer types exclusive until we get a cease and desist from the publisher. Yes, <laughs> so right. You can't release that. Yeah. <laughs> so Reacher, he's famously very reticent. So if we were to ask a question and have you sort of answer as a reacher, would it just kind of be 20 seconds of awkward silence? It depends what the question is. I mean, he would, he would typically, you know, a couple of seconds assessment of the question, and then he'll either give you a one-word answer or just look away as if it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. We talked a little bit before I hit record, and you said that you had started coming to Bausher Khan 20 years ago. What do you think the value is of a writer conference like this for writers and for readers? And why do you still come after all this time? Well, I come because partly these are my friends. You know, this is like the family. This is the family that you choose rather than the one you're stuck with. And um, I think it's all about mutual support um, because this is a great job. I mean, if you complain about this job, then you deserve a kick in the ass. Because, you know, this, this is, a problem in this job is the absolute definition of a first world problem. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there are problems. There are stresses, there are tensions, there are things that need to be figured out. And you can find out from other people that are doing it. You know, you can ask somebody else, what did you do about this? And they'll tell you. So that's part of it. But really, the reason I come is... is fear. I come here having just started my book and I meet an absolute tsunami of new talent. The energy, the ideas uh, amongst the newer writers and I go home in a complete panic and I think I've got to work really hard to keep ahead of these guys. Steve, did Lee Child just uh, seem to imply that he's afraid of us? Well, I mean, look at us. We're pretty imposing fellas. <laughs> he, he was like six foot four. Yeah, but if I stood on your shoulders, we'd be like nine foot nine. That's what we've been missing the whole time. We need to stop being two crime writers and be one crime writer in a trench coat. <laughs> a really long trench coat. <laughs> well, as legendary as Lee Child is, Elmore Leonard might be one of the few writers who is more highly regarded. And now Elmore's son, Peter, is a talented and respected novelist himself, and he's taken on the daunting task of writing one of his father's most beloved characters. Yeah, in the new novel, Raylan Goes to Detroit, Peter continues the story of U.S. Marshal Raylan Givens, and we had at least five questions for him about it. You spent 30 years in advertising. How did that successful career prepare you to be an author? It didn't. Um, and I discussed that very uh, subject with my father a couple of times over the years, and uh, he felt the same way. Uh, I was board writing ads, and uh, one afternoon I stopped by my dad's house, and this was after pitching an ad campaign to Volkswagen. During the meeting, the uh, ad manager took my first storyboard 
and threw it across the conference room like a frisbee. So that was, uh, you know, and, and finally we, you know, we did agree on a campaign, but it just, it was, it, it was annoying. And uh, so I stopped by Elmore's and I was in a coat and tie and my dad was wearing Levi's and a nine inch nails t-shirt smoking <laughs> a cigarette. And uh, he was writing a book called the hot kid excited about a scene he'd written that day. Uh, you know, I was, I was bored with my job and he was on top of the world. So that was my epiphany. I thought if I'm ever going to write a novel, I better get going. And I did. Uh, and a year and a half later, Quiver, my first book, was published, and uh, I felt like I was on my way. Well, you definitely were on your way, and you've had several books published since then. Now, you mentioned your father, Elmore Leonard, who I'm guessing most of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, how old were you when you realized what a big deal he was? Uh, I took... Uh, quite a while for Elmore to be discovered. And uh, I remember I was on a, a business trip in 1985 and I stopped at an airport bookstore and I saw Elmore on the cover of Newsweek magazine. The Newsweek at the time was one of the big uh, weeklies, weekly magazines. And um, there was a photo of Elmore standing outside a jail cell, cigarette in hand, a, a serious look on his face as though you know, that was what, that was the crime writer's look. And, uh, and then after, you know, after that, uh, most reviews of his work hailed him as the uh, best crime writer ever. He took off, his career took off. Raylan Gibbons is among your father's best known characters, thanks in large part to the TV series Justified. What inspired you to take him on in your new novel, Raylan Goes to Detroit? Well, when my father died, friends and family uh, even at at the funeral, asked if I was going to finish uh, the novel he was working on called Blue Dreams. And, you know, it, that hadn't occurred to me. And after mm. thinking about it, I decided it was a bad idea. So that, you know, that was the end of it. And, and but then sometime later, my brother Chris said, hey, why don't you write a Raylan novel? And that sounded interesting to me. Uh, Graham Yost, the showrunner of Justified and his writers, had kept Raylan going for six seasons. So, you know, I, I looked at it like a precedent had been established. Um, I know Elmore's sound, his voice, and sense of humor probably better than anybody. So I decided to take a shot at it. No pun intended. <laughs> I, I, I took Raylan out of Harlan, Kentucky, and brought him to Detroit. In my story, he's assigned to the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force, uh, and he's on the trail of a drug dealer murderer who's escaped from uh, confinement three times. So in your experience, what's more difficult, getting into the skin of a character created by someone else or creating a character of your own? Well, I think creating a character is more challenging, but it's also more fun, particularly bad guys. You come up with a name, throw him into a situation and see how he handles himself. Uh, it's like he's auditioning. That's the way I look at it. Uh -huh. uh, putting Raylan in a book seemed easier. Uh, I felt comfortable stepping into his boots, trying on his Stetson, because I'd read Prano and Riding the Rap and uh, Raylan, Elmore's last published novel. And of course, uh, Six Seasons of Justified. So uh -huh. Raylan felt like an old friend. Your father famously wrote about his 10 rules of writing. Now that you're eight books deep into your own publishing career, is there anything you'd add to the list? 
Yes. In fact, I used to talk to my dad about this. He'd come over for dinner a few nights a week uh, uh, when his wife told him that she would not make dinner for him anymore. She was too busy. So he'd come over and we would uh, talk about writing and it was, it was always fun. And uh, one of the uh, things I would add is keep your readers off balance. When you're plotting, don't do anything obvious or predictable. I love it when someone says, after reading one of my books, wow, you really surprised me. I didn't see that coming. So I think that's one. I think another one is tell your story from the eyes of your characters in shifting points of view so that every character has a, has a voice and a sound and a point of view. It differentiates them. And I think that's critical. Well, our sponsor, Rare Bird Books, has a signed copy of Railing Goes to Detroit to give away to a Lucky Writer Types listener. And I want to know, Steve, uh, we need to look up the rules. Can I enter? Because I really want to read this book. Uh, no, you cannot enter. But something tells me that Rare Bird will hook you up. <laughs> well, Raylan is one of my favorite characters. I've read both of the Raylan novels uh, that Elmore wrote, and I was a huge Justified fan, so I'm really glad that Peter uh, do dove back in and is giving us uh, another taste of Raylan Givens. Well, Eric, you've made this about you and your fandom again. <laughs> Sorry. But we want to give this book away to a Writer Types listener who should just find us on Twitter at Writer Types and tell us where you'd like to see Raylan go next using the hashtag RaylanGoes2. One winner will be selected for a signed copy of Raylan Goes to Detroit. Another character who's back after a long wait is Claire DeWitt, the beloved private eye creation of our next guest, Sarah Gran. Sarah has written the novels Dope, Come Closer, and now three Claire DeWitt novels. And that's in between writing for television and doing some very stereotypically LA things on a Saturday afternoon. So Sarah, I've known you for a few years now, I guess a while, we see each other occasionally. I don't know that I know you know you. What's what, what's a Saturday like for Sarah Graham? We're talking to you now at four in the afternoon. Are you a early riser or a late sleeper? What do you do? Um, I was an early riser today. I got up at six something because I don't sleep anymore because I'm now a middle-aged person and that means you never sleep again. Very sad. I used to sleep all day, you know, whenever I wanted to. So now I get up at 5.30 and I'm cranky and I stay in bed until, you know, I'm sure I can't sleep anymore. Then I get up, then I go, every Saturday morning I go to my therapist at 10. So right across the street from my therapist, there's a super cute coffee shop. I go there early, like an hour or two before therapy and I read and get um, a matcha latte and some breakfast. I've been doing a lot of film photography lately. So I often go to Sammy's to drop off my film and pick it up on Saturdays. And then I did something really weird for me, which is I went shopping on Santa Monica Place, which is not my normal Saturday. Oh. Yeah, but I did it and I went to Sephora with all the fancy ladies and did a normal lady Saturday thing for once in my life. So that was fun. Wow, that's, that's <laughs> you described a very LA um, Saturday so far. Yeah, all that's missing is yoga pants. I did not wear yoga pants, <laughs> you know, or it could be the exact LA stereotype. <laughs> Man, have I been there. Yeah, sure. we all know what it's like. More typically on Saturday, I would be working. <laughs> work, but intellectual work. So par part of that work involves probably staring into space and thinking of ideas. 
Yeah, I have no work that is not intellectual. I'm not competent to do anything that's physical or practical. No, I wish. I wish. I'm not like fixing broken things or anything. <laughs> You're not bricklaying in the afternoons, no. <laughs> I laid some brick, bought some yoga pants, had a glass of wine. <laughs> I guess we can officially start the interview now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> It's been quite a while between Claire to Wit books, but now she's back with Infinite Blacktop. What took so long? People keep asking me that and they're always disappointed by the answer. It's not a good answer. I had a lot of um, family issues. My parents were very sick. My mother passed away. My father is in hospice. So I was not really up to working for a couple months. Also, I, you know, I got busy with my TV stuff. There's a more positive reason. And the other thing is, uh, these books are getting hard to write. Jesus Christ. I really wrote myself into like a fucking corner with these books, you know, because I brought so many things into the story that I don't want to fuck up. It's really important to me. I really look at these books as sort of like my life's work. So I'd rather take five years and really get it right. Well, do you think that the things that have gotten more complicated are just your plotting or is Claire herself just turned out to be a, such a complicated character that she's, uh, she's making it difficult for you? No, it's my plotting. <laughs> <laughs> too, too many ideas in one book. Yeah. Yeah. I just made the world really big and all so many characters and, and, you know, like I said, I'm proud of it and I love it. I certainly don't have any regrets, but it does make it hard to move forward. You know, in the first Claire DeWitt novel, the location was such an integral part of the story. Most series writers would have stayed in a location like that and milked it, but you move Claire around quite a bit. But, you know, maybe that's what made the book so complicated. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Was that a conscious decision that you wanted a new environment for each book? No, I do. I don't remember when I was writing the first one, what I thought was going to happen with the location. I started it when I still lived in New Orleans and then I moved to the Bay Area. So I can't remember what my original plan was, but now it, it is. I like doing them all in different places. Now it's a really fun part of the series for me. Well, I have long been a fan of one of your early novels, Dope, uh, and I've, I would put that book on any top 10 list of uh, contemporary noir novels. Thank you. You haven't really gone back to like a hardcore noir style since then. Is there any specific yeah. reason why? No, no specific reason why. The thing I'm working on now is is not noir, but it's a little more simple and streamlined like that. But. That book was very, like, to me, specific. Like, the influences were very specific by my love of film noir and Raymond Chandler and so many writers from the 40s and 50s who I love. And I kind of have gone through those influences, I think. Well, you also dabbled in horror with Come Closer, but you only yeah. did that once as well. Do we see a theme here about a short attention span, or do things <laughs> just catch your interest? I do have a short attention span, but I have been working on another horror book, and I've done a lot of horror TV and film stuff which doesn't get made and yet I still get to write it and sometimes even get paid for it, which is the really weird thing about working in Hollywood. But I'm definitely still interested in horror and we'll come back to that someday for sure. As you mentioned, you're one of the many writers who does double duty uh, in doing television and, and screenwriting work. Do you prefer the environment of a writer's room or the solitude of a novel? I prefer the solitude of the novel. I prefer the paycheck of a writer's room. <laughs> <laughs> If I could just make a living as a novelist, I would still do some screenwriting, but not as much as I do. I started doing it for the money, for sure, and then I ended up really liking it. I've been really lucky to work with great, smart people who uh, it was totally to my advantage to learn from and to work with. I think my perfect life would be like three quarters novel writing, one quarter writing for film, 
and then maybe a little bit extra doing TV. We've talked a lot about it in this interview, but you've written a successful series. You've written a hard-boiled one-off. You've written horror. You've done screenplays. Now I so, sound like a fancy lady. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> You're a writer's writer, and we are impressed. But I like that expression. Thank you. It makes up for my lack of income. It's a good. <laughs> well, that's what I meant. That's what I meant by writer's writer. Yeah. Say that. Yeah. Is there is there any form of writing that you have a secret desire to do that you haven't gotten oh, around so to many. yet? Oh, so many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really would like to try more nonfiction. I have a lot of topics that I'm interested in. I would love to do more like long form magazine type writing. There's just so many interesting things out there on planet Earth, but I'm always have trouble sort of narrowing them down to like the one thing I'm interested in and want to write about. I want to do a podcast about writing, but I wouldn't interview people. I'm not generous like you guys. I would just talk my own stupid fucking ideas. For <laughs> I would love to try writing a play. I like to do things. I like to do new things and I like new challenges. Well, I think that's what pen names were invented for. Yeah, I might have to start doing that. That might be my next step is pen names in all seriousness, because uh, I want to do different stuff and different genres. And my, my agents and editors are always kind of like, they've been kind of pushing me towards the fake name universe. And I might give up and give into that. Well, you heard it here first, uh, Writer Types <laughs> podcast listeners. If you've got a pen name to suggest for Sarah Grand, go ahead and find us on Twitter and uh, tag Sarah with the hashtag name Sarah Grand. Yeah, I'll need help with that. Thank you. I'm not on Twitter, so you guys will tell me if we get good ones. Thanks to me, they're now going to tag some random person named Sarah Grant, who's going to be <laughs> like a Bible school teacher in Washington or something. Yeah, but maybe they've like new identities as well. We don't know. We don't know what's going on in their lives. And maybe someone out there is using the name Sarah Grant as their nom de, you know, for getting away with something terrible. Yeah. Nom to whatever the fuck they're doing, which I'm sure is better than what I'm doing with it. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, I knew we liked Sarah. She's as negative on this business as we are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but she goes on mic with it. You and I usually don't hit record until after we get it out of our system. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that. I feel like there's a real problem in this community, and that I love this community. is full of the nicest, best people in the world. But there's getting to be a little bit of a problem, and it's the planet Earth. It's not just writers, but with social media, everyone talks about the good parts of their lives and no one wants to talk about the bad parts of their lives. And I get it. People are trying to make a living and they don't want to bring people down and they don't want to be a bummer and they want to keep their private life private. And But it adds up to this thing where people feel really alone when they're going through shit, when their books aren't selling or when they have family issues like I've had over the past few years or when they have problems with their publishers. People used to talk about that stuff and I noticed people talk about it less and less. And I think that's a real problem. You know, whatever your shitty news of the day is, we all have great news and we all have shitty news too. But people have kind of stopped sharing their shitty news. And I'm I'm kind of making an effort when I when I do speak in public, when I do interviews to make sure to share my shitty news too, even if I'm the only one doing it. <laughs> well, I think we've just landed on the idea for your podcast. Sure. Shitty news of the day. You've got your first two subscribers. Actually, seriously, considering that, I'm thinking about doing a podcast where I talk about writing, but I also talk about these challenges that no one talks about anymore and you know my whole thing is about being honest i can't back down on that when i've made a whole fucking career out of being honest i can't only be honest about the good shit and um still live with myself <laughs> so i start a whole podcast just to talk about shitty things that happened to me apparently we'll exec produce for you thank you thank you <laughs> thank you not bad enough more bad things <laughs> Well, Steve, that's it for another one. What did we learn? 
Well, Lee Child taught us that fear is the best motivator. And Sarah Grant taught us there's more money in television than in novels, but we kind of knew that already, Steve. Well, that's it for this one. You can follow us on Twitter at Writer Types and find us on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we always appreciate it when you leave us a review. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit SWLoudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>